I don't want to be a part of a boring church. I like being part of an exciting church, a church that's got something going. I come in the office, I come in, come in the building different times throughout the day and throughout the week, and I'm like, damn, that's out of place, and that's just, that's kind of messed up and whatever. And I'm reminded that this place is being used. It's being used all the time for all kinds of ministries, all kinds of gatherings, all kinds of sessions, all kinds of counseling, all kinds of working through things, the issues in people's lives, all kinds of children's ministries. I want to be a part of something that's exciting because I love excitement in my life. I don't like a boring life. I don't want you to you know, look to a church as though it's boring either. I want you to think of it as an exciting, exciting place to go because when you're when you're a part of something that's exciting, usually there's cheering going on, there's championing going on, and that's exciting. I remember a long time ago, um, I was, we were rummaging through some pictures this week uh, when we were moving some boxes from our previous home to our home that we live in now, and I was looking through and I saw some pictures of me when I was much younger. I had a full, thick head of hair is what I did, and I, um, I replaced the hair with, with this. And so anyway, but, but when I was much younger, and when I competed in the tournament circuit nationally for martial arts, and um, I did really, really well in that particular year, I ended up number two uh, in the nation in men's fighting competition, and um, I had to travel a whole lot and go to different tournaments on weekends and different things and, and work on the... Anyway, I remember going to some tournaments and that were far away from my home. And when they're far away from your home, you don't have the support there of people cheering you on. But there was a girl that would go occasionally to some of these tournaments. She was really pretty. And she would go and she would cheer me on. And I married her, by the way. And, and, and she, she, would, yeah, she would champion me and cheer me on at the tournaments. And it just made all the difference in the world. I remember when I played football. Uh, by the way, if you had a tournament that's far away from home, it was a little bit harder. But when you were home, it changed everything. Because all of your students were cheering you on. All of your, the parents were cheering you on. I mean, when, when, I, when you play football, when I, was, when I started playing football, I really liked the away games. You want to know why I liked the away games in junior high? Because you got out of school early to be able to travel to those away games. You know what I'm talking about? But, but then, I, then I wised up a little bit. I realized, man, it's more fun to play at home. Because when you play at home, you've got the, you got the crowd on your side. It's a, it's a whole different ball game. The same thing with preaching, by the way. It's just something about the synergy in the room. When you get people agreeing with you, saying, amen, come on now. And it just brings, brings the excitement to a whole nother level. So for me, um, being championed in my life, being cheered on in my life has been something that's really helped me. You're being championed, and I'm being championed right now. Hebrews, we're going to hang out in Hebrews just a little bit. If you'll turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and then we're also going to be in Genesis again. So turn to Hebrews and also turn to the book of Genesis. Hebrews is at the end of your Bible. Genesis is at the very beginning of your Bible. Genesis, we're going to hang out in the latter part, somewhere around chapter 50. But in Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to start off. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, here's what it says. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I want to stop right there. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. In case you don't know it, you're being watched in your life. Did you know that? People are watching you. Pete, you know, your neighbor probably saw you pull out of your driveway to come to church this morning. You're being watched whether you know it or not. They would probably really notice if you didn't pull out of your driveway to go to church this morning. Y'all know what I'm talking about because you're being watched in your life. You're being watched by people who know you. You're being watched by people who don't know you. You're being watched by people who are older than you, by people that are younger than you. You're being watched by the saved and you're being watched by the sought. 
You're even being watched by dead people because that's what this says in the scriptures. You're being watched by people who have gone on before you and they are cheering you on. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. This word surrounded also has a connotation to it meaning um, supported. They're coming around you. Think of your life this way. It's a giant uh, soccer stadium, a giant football stadium, uh, a giant arena, and the crowd is just full. Nobody's sitting in their seats. They're standing up, and they're shouting, and they're cheering, and they're championing what's going on, and what's going on is you. <coughs> You're the only one on the field. You're the only one that's out there because it's your life. And as your life unfolds, they are cheering you on. They're encouraging you. Get up, move on. You can do this. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You're being championed. You're being cheered on. And this, this arena called your life is the home team advantage. Yeah, you're, you're, you're being cheered on in the home court. And in fact, the people that are cheering you on all around you aren't fans. They're stalwarts of the faith. They're champions of the faith. They're people who have lived their life for God and they earned their way into the Faith Hall of Fame. The Faith Hall of Fame is located in the Bible actually one chapter before Hebrews 12. So it's Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, there is this long list. The Hebrew writer puts in this long list of people who have made it. Not just who have made it, but people who have demonstrated their faith through their life. It, it takes a lot to get into the faith hall of fame. People like um, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, people like Jephthah and Gideon. They're listed in the Faith Hall of Fame. But what I noticed this week as I was looking at Hebrews chapter 11, I noticed in verse number 22 that Joseph, the guy that we've been studying for about five weeks here at New Life Church, Joseph is also in the Faith Hall of Fame. But before we look at it, I want to tell you this, uh, Joseph being in the Faith Hall of Fame, he's not in the Faith Hall of Fame for the reason you might think. You see, when they're in the Faith Hall of Fame, it actually doesn't just list their name, it tells you why they're in the Faith Hall of Fame. It tells you, by faith, he did this. By faith, she did this. And that's what got them their position in the Faith Hall of Fame. Now, Joseph, it, it seems to me that it could have said, Joseph, by faith, Joseph endured the abandonment and the abuse of his brothers. Therefore, he's in the Faith Hall of Fame. That's not why. It seems it could have said, by faith, Joseph denied the temptation of Potiphar's wife and he ran away. When the world runs toward, he runs away. It could have, but it, that's not the reason why Joseph's name is in the Faith Hall of Fame. Seems to me it could have been, by faith, Joseph remained faithful unto God even though he was falsely imprisoned and accused of a crime he did not commit. But that's not the reason why Joseph's in the Faith Hall of Fame. It seems to me that it could have been Joseph was by faith in the Faith Hall of Fame because he helped to save lives of countless numbers of people through his leadership through the severe famine season. But that's not the reason why Joseph is in the Faith Hall of Fame. Seems to me that it could have been Joseph was in the Faith Hall of Fame because by faith, Joseph chose to forgive his brothers even though he didn't feel like it. Joseph chose to forgive his brothers even though they didn't deserve it. Joseph chose to forgive his brothers even though they didn't ask for it. That's not the reason why Joseph's in the Faith Hall of Fame. 
because it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 22, by faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Well, (laughs) I'm sorry, what? None of that was in the story of Joseph because we just went through the entire story of Joseph. It took us five weeks to get there. We could have taken another five weeks to get there and you still wouldn't have really discovered this stuff. You see, there's a story. Let me read it to you again because you're just like, I don't know what it just said, right? Some of you just checked out on me when you heard the word Israelites. So let's go ahead and read it again. By faith, Joseph, when the end was near, that means when he was about ready to die, he's on his deathbed, um, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt, okay, and gave instructions about his bones. Well, all right then. Um, so why was that the reason Joseph's in the family? I don't understand. I, may have, I don't get it. I, oh, remember, Joseph was a dreamer. Y'all remember that? Well, his spiritual gift really was the gift of dreaming. He had a dream when he was 17 years old. Remember that his brothers would bow down before him. He could interpret the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. He interpreted the dreams of, of, of the king, of Pharaoh. Joseph had an ability to dream, and he had ability to interpret dreams. And so it's no wonder why at the end of Joseph's life, when he's on his deathbed, he had has this vision, this dream from God, and he gathers all the people around, all the leaders around him, and he tells them this. He's like, listen, this is what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to be in captivity and incredible slavery, um, and it's going to get really bad. I mean, people are going to be killed. You're going to be worked literally to death. Your wives and your daughters and your sisters are going to be uh, molested and, 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 and even worse by, the, by your captors. It's going to be hell. But don't you worry, God's gonna come to your aid, and when God comes to your aid, he's gonna set you free, and when he sets you free, he's gonna take you back into the promised land. That's what Joseph says. And they're all looking at him going, this is, he must be delirious. He's on his deathbed, and he's saying something that makes absolutely no sense to us whatsoever. And at his end of his life, he's telling them this, and then he's, where, where is this promised land? This promised land is called the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan happens to be the place where Joseph spent a significant portion of his childhood. We'll get to that in just a second. This is why Joseph is in the Faith Hall of Fame. I want to give you a quick jet tour Bible lesson. Can I do that? Can I just step into the role of teacher for just a couple of minutes and help you understand a few things about the Bible? I don't know if you believe um, or you even... I don't know if you've even ever thought about this before, but um, I don't know if you believe in a 6,000-year history of the earth or if you happen to believe in its, its quintillion years old. I don't know what you believe. All I know is what the Bible says, and that's what I'm going to talk to you about. And I'm not here to advocate one or the other, but I kind of want to help you understand. So let's start with um, Adam and Eve. This is not... Um, uh, the television program, our television channel. This is Adam and Eve, okay? We start with Adam and Eve, and I want to take Adam and Eve, and I want to go all the way through Noah, which is just a few chapters in the Bible. For Not just books, a few chapters of the book of Genesis, right? And, and totally, you're talking about, uh, about 1,050 years. <laughs> just the first few chapters, that's how much time goes by. That's a lot of time. And then you take a look at Noah, and you, ta- you go from Noah, and you go to Abraham, well, that's another 900 years. So now we're about 2,000 years, and we're only about 15 chapters into the Bible. That's it. We're about 2,000 years into history now. So don't you think there's a whole lot of white space in there that maybe hasn't been filled in for us? 
historically. Um, we don't know kind of what happened 2,000 years' time. There's a whole lot. That's like the amount of time there was since Jesus died uh, and, and us. Uh, 2,000 years, a lot of things have unfolded on the earth, but we don't have a whole lot of information about it in, in the Bible. And then from Abraham, I know where you guys are just, you're eating this up. You're like, wow. Uh, um, Abraham uh, to Isaac. Those of you that are Bible scholars, how many years was it for Abraham to Isaac? Because remember, he couldn't have a son, and then it was an old age, he ended up having a son, and his name was Isaac. And how old was he? You guessed it. He was 100 years old. His wife was 90 years old. So some of y'all are like, this isn't a Bible quiz. Troy, this is church. I'm just supposed to listen. You do the talking. So here we go. Abraham to Isaac was about 100 years. And then Isaac, draw the arrow correctly. Isaac uh, to Jacob, who is Joseph's dad, was about 60 years and then Jacob, I don't like the bend here, Jacob to Joseph, Jacob was an old dude when he had Joseph, was about 130 years. So in this amount of time from the beginning, from Adam and Eve, we're talking about 2,100, 2,200 years or so have taken place, and we're only to the chapter, we're only to chapter 37 in the very first book of the entire Bible. Kind of following that for a second? Let that resonate in your mind for just a few seconds. Um, I kind of want to flip the page now because uh, I, I can't. And so we're going to go, Joseph, don't worry, we're not going to do the whole Bible. Um, uh, Joseph to Moses was, we're going to say about 150 years. And then Moses to Joshua was about 100 years. And then Joshua... To Jesus, you're like, yes, he fast-forwarded. Joshua to Jesus was about 1,550 years. And then Jesus to you, yeah, you guessed, is about 2,000 years. Right? So if we do this real quick, we did about 2,200, 23, 24, 24, 2,500, um, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. So we got about 6,000 years. So that's what the Bible kind of takes us historically through. You're like, well, that was fun, Troy. What a waste of the last eight minutes, right? Because why did I need to know that? Because this is the big deal. I want you to concentrate on this for a few seconds. We had been looking at the life of Joseph. Now Joseph, Joseph is going to die. Joseph died in Genesis chapter 50. So we're going back to Genesis chapter 50. And in Genesis chapter 50, Joseph dies, and we read in verse number 26, so Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Bam! Genesis ends. Ain't nothing else in Genesis. You ain't got to read anything else in the book of Genesis. Well, that was an exciting way to end. Now, have you ever heard of a concluding sentence, right? And that was the story of the beginning. It could have been something like that. But instead, Genesis ends this way. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. His body was put into a coffin. It was not buried. What you will always read about somebody who dies is where their body was laid, where they were placed, where they were buried. Joseph's body was not buried, it was stored. You see, Joseph had a command that he had given to his family and he had given to all of the leaders. Joseph was in 
captivity in Egypt. He was a slave in Egypt, and he was living in Egypt. He didn't want to be buried in the place that he was enslaved in. He wanted to be buried in his homeland. He wanted to be buried in the place that he remembered, the place that he was reared. He wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. Now, I'm gonna hit the pause button for just a second because I'm gonna try to make this as easy as possible. I really wanna help you understand the Bible instead of uh, just talking about it and you nodding like you really know what I'm saying and you go home and be like, I have no idea what just happened in the last 90 minutes of my life. So let's unpack this just for a little bit. The land of Canaan, if you will fast forward a little bit, fast forward about 200 years. The land of Canaan is what God has called the promised land. He has said to the children of Israel, his people, he said, I'm gonna give you the promised land. Why is Canaan, which is, Canaan is made up of of, um, part of Jordan, part of Syria, modern day Syria, all of Israel, and and, and all of um, Lebanon. Together they make up this, this, this place called Canaan. This is called in the Bible, the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, if you were a child raised in church, you might have thought of waterfalls of milk and trees that dripped honey. That's not what this is. It means it's a very fertile land. It's a very fertile land in a Mediterranean climate. Listen to me now. It is a piece of land that is gigantic. It's as big as many states. Um, And that piece of land can can produce harvests three and four times a year. You're like, what What is the big deal, Troy? There's only one other place on earth like, there's only one other place on earth like that Mediterranean climate known as the land of Canaan, that is the land flowing with milk and honey. And you happen to be living in it called the Central Valley of California, the breadbasket of the world. You see, the the reason the land around here is so expensive is because literally it's priceless. You can grow, I come from a farming state. There's one harvest a year in the Midwest. Here, there's three or four harvests a year. And that's why it's so, such a powerful land. And this, this land, that we, it's, it's, it's fertile, and it, and it, it has um, the ability to produce crops um, uh, and can feed the world. And so God, God, by the way, only gives the choicest of things to his children. Can you say amen? He wants you to have the best of the best. God wants, you to, God wants you to be blessed in your life. Now, I'm not talking about having the, the Ferraris. I'm not talking about that stuff. But he wants you to be blessed emotionally and, and, and spiritually. He wants you to be blessed relationally. He wants you to be blessed with health in your heart. God wants you to be blessed. And so this land is known as the promised land. And Joseph says at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 50, just before he, he was embalmed but not buried, He says in verse number 24 and 25, then Joseph said to his brothers, let me put these on so I don't get it mixed up because that's just the way it is now. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Well, that is a weird thing to tell them on your deathbed, Joseph. Um, But it's got a great purpose. And some of you are are, are dialed in, some of you aren't. I really hope you'll try to dial in for the next 15 or 20 minutes because there's something powerful in this for you and for me 
today. You see, Joseph did not want to remain in the country in which he was a slave. He wanted his bones to be buried where he uh, would be in the promised land. Now, Joseph is telling something. He's telling the people, you are going to be held in captivity, and uh, you're going to be released by God, and then you're going to have to go in, and you're going to take the promised land, and when you take the promised land, this land known as Canaan, then that's where you're going to bury me. Little did they know that they were going to be carrying the bones of Joseph for the next 200 years before they'd finally have his committal service and his burial service on the plot of ground that he needed to be buried in. Now, I pastored in Iowa for a while, and in the middle of the winter, um, when somebody would pass away, oftentimes we, they would, uh, we would have the funeral service or the celebration of life gathering, and then their body would have to be stored. And the reason the body would have to be stored is because the ground was too frozen. You could not, a backhoe could not dig through it. And so you'd have to wait until the ground was unfrozen because it, it would freeze 18 inches or more below the ground. And it couldn't freeze more than 18 inches underground um, if they were gonna have a committal service. So a lot of times we'd have to, they'd have to store the body until a certain time in the early spring and then we would go out sometimes months after they passed away and we'd have the committal service with the family. That's a long time to wait to get that finality. Two Hundred years have passed by, and Joseph has still not been buried in the land that he asked to be buried in. You see, where he was buried was supposed to be an inheritance to his children. Joseph, like Jesus, was not going to leave an inheritance to his children of bondage and slavery. He was going to leave an inheritance to his children of abundance and prosperity. He was going to leave an inheritance to his children of freedom and liberty. And there's a real purpose in why Joseph asked this, why he told them to do this, and why he prophesied, he explained to them, something bad is going to happen. And at first, they're like, well, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, Joseph. But everything changed in the story. Because the very next verse in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 1, let's look at verse number, um, verse number 6. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all the generations, all that generation died but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. There's a whole lot that took place here. You're talking about a period of at least uh, about 100 years that's, that's taken place. How many of y'all know a lot can happen in 100 years? So between the end of Genesis and the beginning there of Exodus, a lot of time has passed by. And in that time, remember, um, you might think of it, you read the Bible and you're like, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what it says. However, if you were living at the time, uh, at this time, um, he, God would have been known as the God of Joseph. That would have been common language that would have been used then because Joseph was the one who lived the overcoming life. God spared his life and he raised him, remember, in an afternoon from the prison to the palace. So Joseph's life was real time for them about God's faithfulness and God's, uh, God's generosity. But Joseph, Joseph had passed away and now about 100 years has passed and um, you know, the leaders of the, uh, of the, uh, the leader of Egypt they loved Joseph because Joseph saved their land from, remember, seven years of famine? Joseph was the one who stepped up, and he wasn't even from their land. He was an Israelite. But now Joseph is gone, and the leadership's forgotten all about Joseph. And they've forgotten about Joseph, and they've gotten meaner and nastier over this hundred years toward the Israelites. And the Israelites who were then, they were, some of them were enslaved in Egypt when Joseph was there. But after Joseph helped to free them from the famine, it was kind of more of a 
cohabitating in the land. Egypt knew that they were in charge, but they didn't oppress the Israelites. But in that hundred years, oh, did something bad. A guy um, uh, similar to Hitler rose to power over the course of that hundred years. And over the course of that hundred years, he became mean and nasty and horrible. He was the worst evil king that there ever was up to that point in the history of the earth. And in that 100 years, he didn't even know anything about Joseph, but somebody knew about Joseph. Some, somebody, see at that point there was about a million Israelites. They had multiplied 100 years. Come on, you're gonna have lots of babies in 100 years, right? He begat, she begat, they be, you know, whatever they begat. So a lot of begats took place. And so there's a lot of people in the land. And with that, um, somebody in some camp, in some hut within the land of Egypt in where, which they're held in slavery had the bones of Joseph because they were holding on to the promise that Joseph's bones need to be buried in the promised land and that God is going to be with them and he's going to set them free. You see, when Joseph gave the promise, they didn't need to be set free. But then 100 years has passed and they needed to be set free really, really badly. So thus began the story, the saga of Moses. See, this king got so evil and he got so mad. He was so so such a tyrant, and he noticed the Israelites were growing by, by they were being fruitful and multiplying, that he issued a, a decree. He said, here's what I'm going to do. Every firstborn, every, not just first, every boy that is born in the land that's two years old and younger is going to be executed immediately. This was a bloodbath like the world had never seen before. They were slaughtering babies. Go in the nursery and take a look at those kids. Those kids would be gone. My grandson would be gone. They were killing these children because the king didn't want them to multiply anymore. And if he could remove the seed, he could remove the, uh, the, the influence of them. And so the, the babies were being killed. But Moses' mom put him in, a, put him in a, a basket and put him down the river. And the king's daughter happened to see this basket floating down the river. She sends a servant to go retrieve the basket. She sees that it's a baby. She says, oh, I want to keep the precious little baby. Dad's not going to say no to her. God's providentially in this. And so she says, I can't nurse the baby. And there was no, there was no, uh, uh, there was no formula back then, right? Uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't do it. So she had to get somebody to nurse the baby. And she found that there was an Israelite woman who was able to nurse, and it just happened to be Moses' mother. And she brings Moses' mother into the palace, and they raise Moses in the palace together. It's a miraculous story. Until Moses becomes a young man and he realizes, wait a minute, I'm different from everybody else. I've been raised as an Egyptian, but I'm different from everybody else. And he, he realizes, I'm a Hebrew, because you know, Hebrews look a little bit different. And then he sees one of the Egyptian guards beating up one of the Hebrew slaves for no, no reason at all. A big bully match going on. He's, he's going to kill him. And Moses steps in, young man. He beats the thunder out of the, the, the guard, and he kills him. Then Moses realizes, uh-oh, now my life's going to be in jeopardy. So Moses runs. Just a, this is a jet tour through Exodus. So Moses runs. He runs into the wilderness. While he's out there, he meets a pretty girl. They get married. They have children together. And he ends up working for his father-in-law. And for 40 years, he spends 40 years in the wilderness, um, just, trying to not, just trying to stay hidden. He wants to stay away from the king because he knows the king's going to kill him. He knows the king's going to kill him. All along, the, the Israelites are being oppressed and hammered down even more. I mean, they're slaves, and they're being... It's bad, guys. It's really, really bad. Moses then gets called by God. God says, I want to use you. I want you to go and tell Pharaoh, your old 
dad, I want you to go tell him, let my people, you let my people go. And Moses is like, I can't do that. Because the Bible says Moses stuttered. He had a speech impediment. God said, I don't care. I'm going to use you anyway. And then God shows him through a series of miracles how he's going to be able to use him and how he's going to, how he's going to um, help him to unfold his masterful story. And so Moses goes and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Moses says, okay, you, you brought it. So Moses does his thing with his staff. And there are 10 plagues that come upon the people of, of Egypt. What, let me just name it for you. The, there's blood, there's frogs. That's just the freakiest one of, of all of them. There's gnats. We all hate those. There's flies. There's something worse than gnats. Yes, there are. There's the livestock all die. There's boils all over their body. That sounds pretty gross, right? Uh, there's uh, hail that comes down, like destroys everything. There's locusts that just eat everything up. Then there's darkness. And then there's the firstborn. The firstborn, everything dies. The death angel comes and kills the firstborn of everything. Ah, firstborn boy, firstborn girl, firstborn dog, firstborn cat, firstborn pig. They don't have pigs. Uh, firstborn donkey, yes. Um, and if you were firstborn and you're 84 years old, you're still going to die because you were firstborn. So all the firstborns just die. It's gruesome. Except, except God warned the children of Israel, the slaves, he said to them, he said, if you will put the, the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorpost of your home, then I'll pass over your home. The death angel will pass over your home, and, and we're not gonna, the firstborn's not going to die. So that's what happens. After that last plague, um, Pharaoh finally tells Moses, the evil king finally tells Moses, go, get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. Get out, go. Moses says, sweet, right? So they they get on their, uh, on their merry little way. At this point, there's about 1.9 million of them. And together, they have this gigantic parade as fast as they can to get out of town. As the story goes, they could have gone the easy way, but God says you're not going the easy way. God says you're going to go the way of the Red Sea. So God leads them to the Red Sea. He has them cross across the Red Sea on dry ground. Why would God do that? Because it's a door. They're going to go through the door, and then God's going to close the door so they can't chicken out and come back through the door again. Does that make sense? Sometimes God does that to you too. Sometimes he has to go through a door that cannot be opened again. Because if, you, if, the, if the door can be opened again, you'll go back again. A dog goes back to his vomit, sinners go back to their sin. You follow what I'm saying? You want God to close the door. So you need to pray that God, like you close the Red Sea, you would close the door to that chapter of my life, to that sin in my life. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Listen, all along, this stuff's going on. Another 100 years has passed by. So here we are, about 150 years or so into this thing, um, into this journey, maybe a little bit more than that. And let's just take a look at one verse, Exodus chapter 13, uh, verse number 19. This is when they're getting ready to cross the Red Sea. It says, Moses took the bones of Joseph. What? Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear on an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid. Well, it looks like that's what God's doing. Well, it sure does seem like God is coming to our aid right now, doesn't it? We just went through 10 plagues, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. The water just went whoosh, dry ground. Yeah, I think that's a prophecy fulfilled. Check mark, baby, right? Surely God will come to your aid, and that's what he's doing. Um, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. So for this 150 years or so, somebody's had Joseph's bones tucked away. 
And those bones that became an irritant to begin with, what in the world are you making us do, are now becoming faith. That promise was given before Joseph even knew that that promise needed to be given. I'm going to carry these, I'm going to protect these bones. I'm going to do everything I can do. I'm going to see it through because God, you are faithful and God, you will deliver me. And, uh, and it's, this is a miracle that's taking place. It's unfolding. And so um, from Exodus chapter 14 through Deuteronomy chapter 34, that's a lot of the Bible, guys. There's all kinds of details about this. They're wandering in the wilderness for about 40 years. They just got to go about 11 miles. That's all they got to do. They just keep taking the, uh, There's a guy that's driving the front one. He's leading them, and uh, he's not asking for directions. They're going, they're going, they're going. They're wandering around the wilderness. They're going around the mountain over and over again. They're not getting where they need to go. There's a big reason for this, and we're not going to get into that right now. But during that time, uh, headed toward the promised land, they're given the Ten Commandments, the law, the festivals, the sacrifices, the tabernacle. Then Moses dies. And when Moses dies, the mantle of leadership is passed to a guy by the name of Joshua. And I didn't get the excitement that I thought I was going to get out of that one. Yeah, so we're at Joshua now. And here's the deal, through all of the running, through all of the dry seabed they went through, through traveling around the mountain for 40 years, they still had the body of Joseph. And Moses gives to, gives to Joshua, I know there's a lot of J's here, Moses gives to Joshua the bones of Joseph. So this is being passed down. This is 200 years. You know, the United States is only like a little more than 250 years old. So we're talking about a lot of history here, okay? So in 200 years, all this is happening. And then just Joshua actually takes them into the promised land. I got to get a, put a colon there for a second because I got to tell you something about this. The promised land is the land of Canaan. It's, it's the same furrow land. But there are some inhabitants that are living in the promised land. Those inhabitants that are living in the promised land are, Noah had three sons. One of his sons' name was was Ham. (laughs) Crazy name, isn't it? I like Ham. The other one was bacon, the other one was sauce. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Ham, (laughs) yeah, I know, I just, it's funny. Ham was the evil son. Ham had a son uh, and his name was Canaan. Canaan was wicked. Canaan was the one who was, um, the, the uh, how to say, the, the founder, the leader of the land of Canaan, the, for the Canaanites. Um, when Joshua uh, goes in to take the promised land, the first city he goes to conquer, Bible history, which one is it? Yes, travels around the walls of Jericho. You remember the song? Okay, so, so this is the city of Jericho. And what do they have to do the city of Jericho? They gotta march around the walls, march around the walls, shout, whoop, blow the horns, and, and down come the walls. The people get freaked out. They go in and kick some booty, right? That's what the story says, ish, right? And those people are Canaanites that live in there. They're big. They're big. They're big people. Because they're in this promised land, the land of Canaan. So yes, it's the city of Jericho, but it's the land. It's like the city of Lathrop, but it's the land of the United States. Does that make sense? Joshua spends about 100 years. Joshua's an anointed warrior, He's not a politician. He's not a speaker. He knows that. He just punches people in the throat for Jesus. That's what he does for God, okay? That, so he's an anointed warrior, and he is taking back the land of Canaan for God, the promised land for God's people. After about 100 years, they think they've wiped out all of the people of Canaan, and they, uh, they establish their 12 states, 
let's call them states, the 12 tribes are established in this, this beautiful land of flowing milk and honey. And everybody's living happily ever after. But not all the Canaanites were destroyed because that's when you get to the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, Judges, the book of Judges. There's these sects, uh, S-E-C-T-S, um, of, of Canaanites that are popping up here and there. Do you remember that little boy that had the stones and fling it around and hit Goliath? And then Goliath was a Canaanite. Goliath's brothers were Canaanites. Let me tell you why this is important to us today. Because we're now 3,500 years way beyond that, at least. And these Canaanites have still not been destroyed. Many, many of the um, as recent as 2017, archaeological evidence has proven, it's been published in both the USA Today and the New York Times, um, that the, the descendants of Canaan, there are still some evidence of the descendants of Canaan around. And based upon the regions that they're found in, we can trace back that many of the terroristic cells that are out there can be traced to the Canaanites that are still posing problems for the earth today. So I say all that to say, and that's not even the highlight of everything. Some of you, that's what you're going to get out of this today, and I don't just want that for you to get out of it. Um, but, but I say all that to say that Joshua is now going to die. He's at the end of his life, and they're in the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 24, verse number 32, it says, And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem, in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem. This, because, this became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. Now, what is Shechem? Shechem happened to be, if you remember, jo Joseph's dad, Jacob, sent him as a teenage boy. Hey, go find your brothers. Hey, wear your little coat of many colors. And Joseph runs down through the city of Shechem. And he's not, they're not there. So he goes to Dothan, and he finds his brothers, and they sell him to slavery. See, Shechem was where Joseph, the region, the area where Joseph was raised. He just wanted to go home. Shechem, by the way, which is Canaan, was also the very area that Jesus stood some 1,550 years later, talking to a woman who's trying to retrieve water at the well. And he says to her, you know, Jacob, Jacob, this is his well that he had dug? which is another evidence where Joseph was raised because Jacob dug the well that's still producing water. And Jesus says to the woman, the water that you're drinking, it's, it's, I know it's special to you guys because you know, Jacob dug this well some 1,500 years earlier, but you're going to have to come back tomorrow to get more water. The water I give you, you'll never go thirsty again. Jesus then introduces himself as the, the Messiah, the Savior. She goes and tells the whole village of Shechem, the whole village gets saved. Not one of them denies Christ. Revival is brought to that community, and it all comes full circle. It's a beautiful story. Now, what I want you to understand this morning is, is, is 200 years passed between the time Joseph died and the time he finally gets to his burial. What does God want us to understand about this? Well, well Canaan was Joseph's homeland. Joseph was sold into, into slavery Joseph dies in the place of slavery, and he foretells that there are going to be people who are going to be freed. See, Joseph struggled for 13 years in slavery, didn't he? We know all about that. The children of Israel struggled for at least 40 years in slavery. And it was Joseph's imprisonment was nothing 
compared to what the people were going to go through. So Joseph's imprisonment was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to the entire nation of God's people for the next 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years. And God was faithful, and the promise was fulfilled. And sometimes the only thing you can hang your hat on is the promise of God. And the people knew the promise of God because they had tangible evidence of the promise of God. It was the bones of Joseph that they were carrying for 200 years. And so we stand at this final point. Get this. Joshua, before he dies, he's 110. Joseph was 110 when he died. It's kind of interesting. They're both the same age. At 110, he's getting ready to die, and he gets Joseph's bones into the, into the land of Canaan. And he says, we're going to have the committal service of a lifetime. So he gathers the entire nation. They come together, and they turn this into a party, and they finally have a committal service, a burial service for the bones. of Je- That's a long time to wait for the family to grieve and have closure to losing Joseph. I mean, they're all dead and gone too. Do you see what I'm saying here? Joseph had faith to see beyond his own existence, and he realized the story was not about him after all. And guess what? The story's not about you either. The story's about us taking the baton, being faithful, and passing the baton. It's a story that is fulfilled through us, not in us. Can someone say amen to that? Now, I want to conclude with this, because I started off with Hebrews chapter 12. So for time's sake, I'm going to go to the screen now, because we're right there. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, it says, let us throw off... Joseph's in that crowd. Joseph's in that crowd, baby. He's looking down at you, and he is saying to you, come on, Kyler. Come on, Kyler. You can do this. Don't, get, don't, don't you lay down. You get up. You move forward. You press on. You want to know why you're struggling so much? Because... You got to throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. You got to get rid of it. Don't be weighed down. And that happens gradually, doesn't it? The Hebrew writer goes on to say, by the way, this is 1,500 years later, just about. I mean, actually, it's more than that. It's after Jesus. So it's probably 1,600, 1,700 years later, after all of this took place. The Hebrew writer is saying, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. In other words, you got a race, you got a race, you got a race, and I got a race. Today, we're going to do a 5K, and we're all going to run the same track, right? But that's not how it is. You have your race, and I have my race. You got to stay in your lane, right? You got to do what God has called you to do. And if we'll all do what God has called us to do, this well-oiled machine will be able to move forward, called the church of Jesus Christ. So never quit. Stay in your lane. Never quit. And how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we not quit? It seems, it seems like I got nothing left in the tank, Troy. I can't go any further. I can't give any more. How do I do that? Verse number two, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and the finisher, the the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. That's how you do it. You don't look down. You don't look to the side. You certainly don't spend your lifetime looking behind you. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I should have had an illustrated message here, but here's what we do in Taekwondo. If you want to pass for your black belt, you got to do something. You got to jump over a body. Somebody bent over at waist level. You got to run, jump over that person and break a board in the air with your sidekick. And I have so many people say, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. Stop it. The reason you can't do it is because you're looking at the obstacle. You're not looking at the goal. 
if you will keep, if you will run and keep your eyes on the board the entire way, instead of ever looking at the obstacle, I promise you, your body is not going to run into the obstacle. You will jump over that obstacle and you will succeed. It's, it's that, it's that, that keep your eyes fixed on Jesus for the joy set before him. It goes on to say, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, sat down at the right hand of, right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What is he saying? The Hebrew writer here is saying, listen, you will have persecution in your life. The Hebrew writer is saying, you will get tired. You will get tired. You will start to grow weary. The Hebrew writer is saying, you will have times that you'll be tempted to lose heart. You'll have times. Some of y'all are there today. So I want to I give you a, a gift. I want to give you a gift. Would you, would you help me, please? I want to give you one of these. It's what I've been sporting the whole time. Some of you are like, man, i got to get one of those. Troy's sporting that thing. You didn't notice, but I'm sporting it right now. And it's, it's a bracelet that says, greater is he. Because the Bible says, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 4. Let's go ahead and there. Thank you. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. What? David, what is overcome them? Have overcome the evil, the evil spirits, the demonic presence, the, 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 the drive of Satan to steal and to kill and to destroy. You have overcome those things in your life. Life might not be perfect for you, but listen, you're an overcomer. You are overcoming the power of the evil one in your life. That's what he's saying. You've overcome them. Because why? Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this whole world. Can someone say amen? I want you to wear this thing and I want people to ask you questions. Greater is he, greater is who? I'm glad you asked. Because greater is Jesus who is in me than the power of the evil one that is in this world. That's how you persevere. You see, this Hebrews chapter 12, the verses we just read about this um, uh, great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, following that is the formula, the formula for entrance, for admission, not as a spectator, but it's a part of the Faith Hall of Fame. See, the Faith Hall of Fame has not been stopped. Stop accepting membership. You and I, I, I want to be in that. I want to be in that. I want you to be in that Faith Hall of Fame. And the way you do that is when life gets tough, keep your eyes fixed on the prize, fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. You keep going. You don't stop. You go for it because you know greater is he who is in me than he was in the world. Father, we love you. We thank you. We bless you. You're a good and gracious God. God, I don't know. I don't know. When I look at the Bible in its entirety and I see the story unfold and I see grace and power and miracles and provision and providence, I see, I see blessing beyond measure. I see the hand of God in lives, in families. Oh, I don't see perfect people other than Jesus. I see people who mess up over and over again, but people who get up and people who move on. I see people who experience grace. I see people who experience forgiveness. And I want to be counted a part of that group of people. So thank you, Lord. The greater is he who is in me 
than he who is in this old world. Would you stand with me and just sing that old chorus that Trinity was leading us in at the beginning of the gathering? I stand in awe of you. Lift your hands to the Lord and just sing it unto God. Yes. And I stand, I stand in awe Yes, God. I stand. that as we look at the history and how it unfolds, how it's led to us and how it's going to lead to generations beyond us, that you don't just see the big picture, God, but you see our hurts, you see our struggles, you see our fears, you see our anxieties, you see our pains. You are a friend that sticks closer than a brother. So friend, if you've got a need today, you've got a need in your life, You've got this pain, this frustration, this disappointment, this discouragement, this setback in your life. You've got this sin, this struggle, this problem. You've got this person that's causing you uh, to feel anger and you're boiling over, being consumed by frustration. You've got, you've got fatigue that is weighing you down. You've got a need in your life. I want you to lift your hand up to the Lord, the God that careth for you, and say, God, take my, I cast all my cares upon you because you care for me. God, I give it to you today, God. You are the author and the finisher of my faith. If I can trust you for the grand story, then I can trust you for my story. If I can trust you for the big picture, then I can trust you for my picture. God, I ask in Jesus' name, that you would deliver me, that you would strengthen me, that you would renew me, that you would help me, that you would free me, and God, that you would heal me. We pray this today in the powerful, anointed, awesome name of Jesus Christ. If you agree, say a hearty amen, and amen, and amen, and amen, and amen. Praise God, praise God, praise God. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance upon you. May he give you rest and may he give you peace. Hallelujah, hallelujah.